Drive Time with Travis Wingfield begins now. Let me check your pulse if you're not fired up. What is up, golf fans, and welcome to the Drive Time Podcast, part of the Miami Dolphins Podcast Network covering your team, your Miami Dolphins. How's it going, everybody? I am your host, Travis Wingfield, and on today's show, it's Wednesday And y'all know what that means. Time to preview another Miami Dolphins football game. We'll get into the details and keys between the Dolphins and Broncos, including key stats, the key storylines, a history of the Broncos to this point, the tell of the tapes, and of course, the keys to victory from the Baptist Health Studios inside the Baptist Health Training Complex. This is the Drive Time Podcast. A not-so-familiar foe coming from the Rocky Mountains and John Denver, which seems odd with them being in our conference. We last played the Broncos in 2020, and the last time we played them here was 2017, and that just goes to show you that we have not had the same divisional standing as the Broncos in a long time. So we get that three-year rotation game with playing the entire AFC West every three years. But still, this quote-unquote rivalry is home to some of my favorite all-time Dolphins games, that 2002 Sunday night football victory, the hardest-hitting, most physical football game I've seen the Dolphins play in my lifetime to propel Miami to a 5-1 and record on the foot of Alindo Mare, on the broken thumb of Jay Fiedler, and the arms of Ricky Williams, and really the defense was the one, defense and Ricky were the ones that really put them in that position, but also atop the ESPN power rankings after that victory, and I recall showing all my friends in Computer Lab the next day, hey, look, who is number one in ESPN's power rankings? The 2005 opener was my senior year of high school. Uh, We were supposed to get waxed, but instead we're the ones doing the waxing 34-10. We also had a big win up there Uh, The Wildcat season, which was a big victory for the divisional championship that we claimed last time we did that in 2008. And truth be told, the Tebow game, your boy wanted Andrew Luck that year. So I was pretty excited about that comeback from touchdown Jesus himself. Then the 2014 game where Tannehill played maybe the best game of his career as a Dolphin, but then Peyton Manning did Peyton Manning things to overcome an 11-point deficit in the fourth quarter. Since that guy retired, though, since their 2015 Super Bowl championship, it has been tough for the Broncos at quarterback, as has the search for their franchise quarterback. Trevor Simeon, he wasn't it. Brock Osweiler, Paxton Lynch, Case Keenum might have been the best of the entire bunch. Drew Locke, Joe Flacco, Brett Ripien, Jeff Driscoll. It's not all that dissimilar to what we went through in the post-Marino era, which is a little bit shorter of a timeline. And they also fittingly had issues finding their heir apparent to Elway before Manning's arrival in 2012. Combined from the first year after the Super Bowl championship, so 2016, through the last year without Russell Wilson, 2021, they were 39-58, and 58, yet still as a franchise, 500 and 456 all-time, and that includes last year's 5-12 and 12 record. So all things told, that is 70 losses compared to uh, 44 wins over a six-year span, and then 0-2 this year, so 44 and 72 at this point. But enter Russell Wilson, and year one did not go as planned. He could not see the concepts. He could not throw the ball vertically. He could not scramble. It was a disaster. More on that later. Then enter Sean Payton, who's 0-2 so far and made more headlines with his mouth than his team's play on the field. And they had an 18-point lead evaporate last week. He's ruffled the feathers with his words since his arrival. But let's not make any mistake about this. The passing game looks back to old Russell Wilson, albeit a small sample size, essentially one half of football. 
against the Washington Commanders. And that game is obviously doing a lot of heavy lifting in terms of their season-long production. But if he can do that, if he can recapture that one half of football he had against Washington, then the passing game can get back to NFL competency levels. And I think the thinking there for them is a team that's had an excellent defense since a certain head coach there built it that way back in 2019. I'm talking, of course, about Vic Fangio when he acquired Kareem Jackson and drafted Patrick Sertan, Baron Browning, Caden Stearns, Jonathan Cooper, and Draymond Jones all pieces added during the Fangio run. And quite frankly, that's their best pass rusher, their best cover guy, arguably the best cover guy in the entire National Football League, and their two best Wilkins and Sealer analogs in Cooper and Jones, although Jones has been traded to Seattle for Russell Wilson since that time. But you get the point. And with all that said, has the window passed that defense by? Because the issue was quarterback play and the offense the last several years. And of course, it's hard to win with uncertainty at quarterback, especially when you invest a massive contract and several premium draft picks into that player. Currently, though, 23rd in points allowed on defense and 16th in total defense. If it's too early to say the jury is in, which I think it is, but it is a continuation of last year's defense ranking 14th in scoring, despite being 7th in total defense, but I think that was more of an indictment of their offense being 32nd overall. They just could not sustain drives. But in 2021, Vic's last year there, 3rd in points and 8th in total defense, so Maybe it has come and gone. And this happens sometimes where two units do not mature at the same time, and it kind of puts you in this limbo in the NFL where between six and eight wins annually, gosh, don't we know that struggle. Again, not saying that's where the Broncos are right now, but it looks to me like that's where they're headed unless they change course. But I think it's an interesting study to see how it bears out over the next few months here for the Denver Broncos. Before we get to know the players and the matchups here in this game, how about some of the key storylines? I don't think there are many here because, like I said, we don't play them very often, and they're not really a team that can intense with us at this point right now already being two games behind you can put them three and a half games behind with a victory here because of the head-to-head tiebreaker and three games up in the standing so the first one to me is the climate change for Denver not uh, global warming which is obviously real and if you uh, you know what let's let's revert back from that the climate change from going to beautiful Denver, Colorado, where this week the highs are in the high 70s, which is pretty good, obviously, but that 50% humidity and the real feel of like 75 degrees doesn't quite match up where you're going to get down here. That 90% humidity on Sunday with a real feel of 94 degrees, trust me, it hits different. You cannot walk from your car to the gate. I mean, if you have the orange parking pass like I do, it's about a 500-foot walk without getting damp in your pits, on the back of your knees, on your forehead, and everywhere else. Uh, how do the Dolphins take advantage of that? The last time the Broncos played a September game in Miami was that 2005 season. And if you guys recall that one, I have that VHS tape somewhere. I've seen it about 35 times and it's getting to the point like uh, Saul Goodman's tapes. I watched it so many times that it's starting to run out of wear and tear. Actually, I don't know where it is anymore, but you get the idea. But they ran out of cornerbacks in that game because of cramping. And Marty Booker, Mr. 4-6 Marty Booker, ran away from the entire defense on a go ball on a 60-yard touchdown. Like that tells you how hurting they were in that game. It's also an 11 a.m. body clock game for them, which is a game that teams from the West Coast traditionally struggle to play in. A 3-0 versus an 0-3 start is my next headline here. Normally, I hate the X percent of teams make the playoffs after an X and X start, like whatever. The truth is that good teams typically start good and bad teams typically start not good, right? So those numbers can kind of go out the window, but... For instance, the Chargers are a team like I know they're not a bad team despite being 0-2, but when I look at the Carolina Panthers at 0-2, I know they're not good, and that's why they started 0-2. However, the numbers here at 3-0 and 
are pretty jarring. Since 1970, 76% of teams to start 3-0 have made the playoffs, including last year's Miami Dolphins. How about this one, though? 99 teams have begun 0-3 over the last 20 seasons. I don't know why there's a difference in length of that span. Maybe it's because of the stat. 99 teams 0-3 over the last 20 years, and just one has made the playoffs, the 2018 Houston Texans. It's an urgent game for Denver. We should get their best effort, but we also get to come back home. We love this building, don't we? Home sweet home, baby. We are 12-2 in our last 14 games at Hard Rock Stadium, and surprise, surprise, the streak started the moment that Brian Flores stopped thinking that Jacoby f***ing Big Slops Brissett was better than Tua Tungavailoa, or I guess he was forced to take slops out of the game after getting hurt against the Ravens. And this team, under the guidance of Tua, doesn't typically lose games they're favored in, so looking forward to that trend continuing, hopefully. How about Fangio and Butch Berry facing their former team? So much has changed since Fangio was there, but I'm sure he'd like to win this game just a little bit extra than usual. Probably the same for Berry as well, who has this Dolphins offensive line playing like one of the best units in the NFL. Just one sack allowed and coming off a 145-yard ground attack on Sunday Night Football, compared to a Denver offensive line, who this year has allowed the fifth most sacks in the NFL at nine. His teaching techniques, I think, are really taking hold to this Dolphins group up front. All right, let's go ahead and get our first break in there early and come back on the other side and preview Dolphins offense versus Broncos defense. That's next, Draft Time Podcast. Your host, Travis Wingfield, brought to you by... Picasso knows your vacation home is your best home. It's the place that brings family and friends together. It's where you're the best version of yourself. Picasso makes it easy to co-own a luxury vacation home in amazing locations. Listings start at 200K for one-eighth ownership. Picasso does the hard parts for you. Luxury furnishings, maintenance, billings, scheduling, and more with a home management team that provides support before, during, and after your stay so you can focus on the relaxing, hosting, and making memories with family and friends. And you can resell on Picasso's marketplace anytime, historically for a 10% gain. With Picasso, you can stop saying someday and start building family traditions today in a vacation home you own and revisit time after time. Visit Picasso.com today to see thousands of luxury vacation home listings. That's P-A-C-A-S-O.com. AutoNation. Love cooking up some game plan ideas and how these matchups might go as we move on to a third preview of the season. I believe I said 27-24 Dolphins over Chargers. I believe I said 28-17 over the Patriots. Feeling pretty good about how accurate those predictions played out. And quite frankly, uh, I think the Dolphins were a lot closer to 28-17 than they were 24-17 in terms of how that game played out. But either way, I'm going to give you a prediction at the end of this episode. And here's why I believe that in the next 20 or so minutes. So the Dolphins offense, we know who they are by now. But quarterback versus safety, Tua Tungavailoa versus a pretty good trio of safeties back there, at least the top two guys. Justin Simmons, one of the best in the NFL, and Kareem Jackson are their two go-to guys. Jackson got ejected last week, and we'll get a fine, will not get a suspension after a pretty dirty hit on commander's tight end Logan Thomas. And then Turner Yell was the guy that stepped in. And when they lost Jackson... Their deep passing defense really fell apart in that game. Receivers versus corners, obviously Hill, Waddle, Craycraft, Easy E, Patrick Sertan's one of the best in the business, Damari Mathis, and then Fabian Moreau played like 10 snaps total. So they go Sertan and Damari Mathis and nobody else in the perimeter. In the slot, Berrios and Smythe versus Isang Bassey. Bassey plays about 65% of the snaps there, which is according to their you know nickel defense for the most part. So Sertan, Mathis, and Bassey almost 
to the T, you can predict their role in games. And then Simmons versus Sing- and Singleton versus Smythe and the tight ends in the passing game. <clears throat> Interior offensive line, Wynn, Williams, and Hunt have been fantastic. They get a nose tackle in DJ Jones, who plays 58%, and Mike Purcell plays 32%. Think of both of those guys as... <clears throat> John Jenkins-esque, just big space eaters who try to occupy a couple of blocks and free up the linebackers to make their plays. Also on the interior, Harris as 59% snap taker. And then Zach Allen is a guy that plays 85% of the snaps, a, a draft hit for the Cardinals who exited via free agency and now is playing here for the Denver Broncos. Off the edge, will it be Armstead or will it be Kendall Lamb? Either way, I think you're pretty good. And then Austin Jackson up, up against Jonathan Cooper, a 68% snap taker. Randy Gregory, 65 Nick Benito. 45 and then Frank Clark has played just 19% of the snaps and then Josie Jewell is our middle linebacker who's played 91% of the snaps as well as Alex Singleton 75% against running backs like Mostert, Ahmed and A-Chain and obviously you know it's a pretty high snap count for those two linebackers we'll find out more about that here in just a moment their best player on defense besides Sertan in my opinion is Baron Browning but he's on the injured reserve and their number two cornerback Kawan Williams is also out as well as safety three Caden Stearns all going to be down for this game let's go ahead and start there on the defensive backfield because I think it's probably the matchup that statistics say favor Miami the most so Williams was signed as that cornerback two behind arguably the best cornerback in the NFL, and that's who I would take if I was starting a team today at corner, Pat Sertan the second. You want to talk about a tough position? There's, there's, that's why you kind of know by name um, the guys that are the best in the business, and I think he's in that category for sure um, because, I mean, put it this way, your job is to cover someone with your back to the thing you're defending um, which is the goal line, and you have no idea what they're going to do. So you talk about you have to have certain traits um, to be able to execute that, um, as well as you have to be deliberate in your approach, you have to have technique and fundamentals, and um, you have to be uh, patient when you need to be and aggressive when you need to be. So I think um, you know, he deserves all the, all the praise he gets. He's a heck of a player. And so Damari Mathis has been filling in at the perimeter with Isang Bassey and the slot. And Bassey was a guy they cut a couple years ago and have brought back since then. But Damari Mathis has struggled in a big way in that role. 15 for 17 are teams targeting him for a buck 78 and three touchdowns on just 83 coverage snaps in that game, like, or in those two games. That, if you can go one yard per coverage snap, that's pretty good. Two yards is atrocious, and he's over that mark. Terry McLaurin got him four of five for 45 yards and a touchdown. Three other receivers got targets and went three for three for 38. Versus Las Vegas, Jacoby Myers had six of seven for 63 and two touchdowns. So pretty much everybody has gone after him and found success. Such your rabbit hat this week to Mario Mathis. And then Pat Sertan, opposite story. Two for two, 17 yards against Diami Brown last week. Just two yards of yak, so he's playing a little bit of soft and off for a couple of cheap completions underneath that you don't worry about versus Las Vegas Devontae Adams tried him five times caught just two for 16 he's also played Tyreek one time in his career and held the cheetah to two for 25 and had a pick so Waddle's availability could be big here because I mean I wouldn't go away from Tyreek if it's one-on-one but I imagine they'll even help Sertan a little bit but I would go with that matchup for the Broncos and if Waddle's available 
I mentioned it last week, 150 yards. He got like 86, but obviously he was banged up and, and dinged up a little bit here and there. And we had some woes that kind of, you know, shut the offense down a little bit in the second half. But if Waddle plays in this one, I think he's going to electrify the home crowd once again. In the slot, Isang Bassi was two for two last week in terms of targets and catches, both chunk gains against tight end. So I wonder if Durham Smythe can get some play in that role. They also ran a couple of slot screens and he cut both those down for no gain on those plays versus Las Vegas, two for two for 12 yards. So it really, teams are going after Mathis and the Broncos cornerbacks and Sertan and Mathis never go inside. Bassey exclusively plays there. I'll be curious to see how they handle the speed and the weather and if they have to utilize more players because we've seen it happen down here before where defensive backs have to go get a blow or miss an entire series and if Miami can test the depth they have there it could make for another very productive and fruitful day uh, for the Dolphins passing game. Up front we know they love to blitz. They love it more than anybody else in the NFL. It's a Vance Joseph non-negotiable scheme principle. One of the top blitz rates annually. Lots of base with backers and coverage. I mentioned the two linebackers playing both over 75% of the snaps. It's a high number. Primarily single high to insert an extra safety down in the box and play that run. So run defense, they add up a player in the gap, but it takes away from somebody up top. Will they do that this week? And then blitz on top of that and play thin in the coverage? You're flirting with fire there if you do that. So traditionally, they play kind of like the Chargers game plan in week number one. And how did that work out for them? So maybe you get a little more fireworks style attack compared to last week's efficient, smart, take a short profit approach. I was curious to see how effective Joseph's blitzing has been. So I went back and found a few things. First off, this year's blitzing versus Garoppolo in the opener. Uh, he was eight for 10. He had two runs, wasn't sacked. So he was forced off the spot two times and, and ran for positive yardage for 118 yards, no touchdowns and no picks, but was blitz was pressured just four times on 12 blitzes. That's not good. You got to get home more than that. Uh, Howell versus the blitz last week was six for 11, one sack and one scramble, 77 yards, no touchdowns and no picks. He was pressured 15 times, but he holds onto the ball 2.91 seconds on average. It takes most, you know, the Broncos 2.6 seconds to get there on average. Like that's just a quarterback that's young, doesn't see the field very well. And what is Vance Joseph's blitz preference? The answer is yes. 35% was second last year. He was third in 2021 at 35% again. In 2020, he was fourth, but at 40%. So he's going to bring the blitz more than one-third of the time. It's who he is. He will blitz Tua at least one-third of the snaps. I also wanted to see how Tua has fared against the blitz this year, and he's done quite well. 21 for 31, 260 yards, two touchdowns, no picks, zero scrambles, zero sacks. This will not be an effective approach against the Dolphins if they do that. going to be a good night if you do that. We'll see if they adjust. And finally... I also wanted to see how the Cardinals fared against the Niners last year when they blitzed Garoppolo and Purdy, since we know there's a fair deal of crossover there between the two offenses. Two games against San Francisco, their quarterbacks against the Blitz were 14 for 17, 153 yards, three touchdowns, and no picks, but there were two scrambles and three sacks, 22 total dropbacks. It was just seven blitzes against Garoppolo and 15 against Purdy, so maybe, maybe there's some sense there that they won't blitz two of that frequently, but I have to see it to believe it. Personnel-wise, I mentioned the linebacker right? They are in that 34 front 26% of the time. That's the highest in the NFL in a base defense. And they run a 4-3 8% of the time. So they are in base 34% of the time, which if they do that against our 11 personnel packages, or if we have, you know, Reek and Waddle and Ezukama in the game and line those guys up in the backfield, there's going to be mismatches in the passing game all day long. I look for Ezukama to get some pass game action out of the backfield in this one. That's a key that I think that Miami can exploit here. As you line him up there, you keep him in that base defense. Maybe you motion him to his position where he gets one-on-one coverage against an Alex Singleton, and Ezukama can make 
some big plays in the passing game this week. They run their nickel 55% and dime 8% of the time. Now, their coverage rotation is pretty stark because pre-snap, they are single high just 31% of the time compared to 67% of the time in two deep, and there's a little bit of zero and three covered there, but not very often. And they eventually will wheel out and play single high and do some man free and some zone looks from that single high position. And that's all centered around Justin Simmons, who's one of the best in the entire game. If I'm Tua, I'd be very careful about trying to manipulate him. He tends to know what you're doing as fast as you know what you're doing. So just be careful going after an all-pro safety back there in Justin Simmons. Just avoiding Simmons and Sertan, I think, will have this offense flying for some big success. How about their front seven on defense? Uh, Their top bend speed power guy is down in Baron Browning. He's their top pass rusher in general. The style of rusher they feel right now is pretty common across the board or I should say there's not a lot of uniqueness there uh, it's heavy heavy end players akin to what the Patriots have but think about New England sans Matt Judon because that's kind of what Browning's analog is, is is Matt Judon but Jonathan Cooper low three cone low vertical not a very good corner speed uh, he's a 260 pound player Zach Allen's 285 pounds heavy handed big motor for days now Nick Bonito is a 45% snap taker but he does lead them with five quarterback pressures and Randy Gregory is also kind of that length juice athlete combo but the pressure tolls this year have not been good for those guys or for anybody really I mean their pass rush is not getting home Five for Bonito, four for Cooper, three for Allen, three for Gregory. Not a lot of pass rushing win rates there. It's good for a pass rush win rate of 28th in the National Football League. At McDaniel's Wednesday news conference, we got a great little soundbite from him talking about Butch Berry, the impact he's had on the Dolphins' offensive line, and why he was so excited about bringing in the new offensive line coach for this season. Yo, that was thunder. Oh, my God. Let's go ahead and hear from Coach on Butch Berry. I I was fortunate enough to work – um, directly with with Butch in San Francisco um, for uh, my, my last season there, and you know you the the ins and outs of a, a season, especially the the one we had there, where um, you know we were uh, people were speaking on next year in the middle of the season. We went on a run and then found a way to galvanize and got to the NFC Championship game. Those uh, that relationship. You, there's no hiding. You kind of know what you're going to get. Um, and after uh, really taking in the um, the full or digesting the whole 2022 season, um, you know, I, I thought he was just what the doctor ordered. I think um, if you ask the players, they would say the same thing. And it's not because of anything but um, his commitment to uh, the task at hand, his commitment to the players and his integrity of his of his position, you know, he's relentless. Um, he's, uh, I mean, he's sweating in a sun hat every day. Um, brings the juice and takes it very, very serious. So, um, I think the the residuals um, are, are in the players, and you know, the I, I'm, I commend um, the whole group um, for understanding their various roles and using each other to maximize um, all, all their potential, and which is, you know, this is um, letter C in the alphabet. We have, we have a long way to go, but um, uh, it's, it's been very encouraging, encouraging thus far. I think Miami matches up well for a couple of reasons here. They've been excellent handling the extra rushers, different fronts and bluffs and delays and mugged up backers. Just a really good singular unit functioning as one. 
Then if Waddle's available, I think it's a mismatch for anybody on the back end there that they might see. Finally, their off-ball linebackers. I mentioned Josie Jewell. He's a really good player. Singleton has been there for a little while now. I do wonder if they can match the speed of our running backs, especially if they do align receivers in the backfield to keep that base defense out there against if they want to go base against 11 and that's how they want to play it I, I just don't think there's many options here for the Denver defense to slow this offense down personally but in coverage teams have gone after those two linebackers 15 times 12 completions a buck 26 and they are frequently put in position to cover that hook zone so how they flow to the outside runs uh, you know to kind of replace what they want to do is stack the edge with those heavy ends They have to commit linebackers downhill to that, but then their ability to get deep drops off of that, I don't know if they can do both. I just don't think they match up well. So all three areas, I think it's going to be a struggle. I think it's a 40-point day for the Miami offense. How much will the Broncos score? That's next on the other side here of the Drive Time Podcast. Your host, Travis Wingfield, brought to you by AutoNation. Picasso knows your vacation home is your best home. It's the place that brings family and friends together. It's where you're the best version of yourself. Picasso makes it easy to co-own a luxury vacation home in amazing locations. Listings start at 200K for one-eighth ownership. Picasso does the hard parts for you. Luxury furnishings, maintenance, billing, scheduling, and more with a home management team that provides support before, during, and after your stay so you can focus on the relaxing, hosting, and making memories with family and friends. And you can resell on Picasso's marketplace anytime, historically for a 10% gain. With Picasso, you can stop saying someday and start building family traditions today in a vacation home you own and revisit time after time. Visit Picasso.com today to see thousands of luxury vacation home listings. That's P-A-C-A-S-O.com. We've done the storylines. We've done the Broncos history. We've done the Dolphins offense versus the Broncos defense. Let's go ahead and finish up here with the Miami defense against the Broncos offense. And their quarterback, Russell Wilson, will go up against a trio of safeties. And I'm curious to see what Brandon Jones' workload could look like this week as he slowly ramps up to getting back on the field on defense. I continue to look at this defense like if they're going to play like they did on Sunday night with the personnel they have available to them right now, which didn't even include Jalen Phillips. And if you're going to get... Brandon Jones back at some point. You're going to get Nick Needham back at some point. And by the way, Jalen Ramsey is coming up around the corner as well. <laughs> Have mercy, man. This team is going to be so damn good. They won a game on Sunday night with, I would argue, three of their top six players not available in Teron Armstead, Jalen Phillips, and <clears throat> Jalen Ramsey. Back to this game, receivers versus corners. We know about Howard, Kohu, Smith, maybe some Eli Apple on the perimeter, up against Cortland Sutton, who played 87% of the snaps so far. Jerry Judy played just one game, which is good for 35% of the workload. And then Brandon Johnson, 47%. Marvin Mims, 25%. On the interior, Eli Apple and Justin Bethel, the ones that play in there more frequently with some Cater Kohu. But, you know, Apple is the one that comes on the field for those nickel packages, and Bethel is the dime back right now. Little Jordan Humphrey, 50% of the workload as a slot receiver, and that's pretty much it. The rest of it is ran by their two heavy tight end packages, Adam Troutman, 77%, and Chris Manhurts, 35% of their workload there with uh, Greg Dulcich out for the foreseeable future, as well as receiver Tim Patrick being down. On the offensive line, Wilkins, Sealer, Davis, and Hand will go up against Ben Powers, 
Lloyd Cushenberry and Quinn Minerts, two of those guys, big draft crushes the last couple of cycles here uh, for draft Twitter, I should say. <clears throat> Off the edge, Phillips, Chubb, Van Ginkle, and Ogba against Garrett Bowles and Mike McGlinchey. <laughs> Jerome Baker and David Long against Samaje Pirine, 47% workload. Javante Williams, 45% workload. And they have a fullback, Burton, who plays 15% of their snaps. Let's go ahead and start in the passing game in the quarterback Russell Wilson is a big play hunter, but he hasn't stretched the field consistently and protection's been an issue for whatever team he's played for going back the last three seasons. And sacks are a quarterback stat, fellas. We agree because we've seen this offense play without Tua and the sacks go up by like three times. With Tua, they never sack a quarterback. It's a quarterback stat. Russell Wilson holds the ball this season so far, 3.15 seconds on average. It's the second longest in the league behind... Zach Wilson, and there's a common theme among the quarterbacks in the top five of time to throw. They all kind of stink. Wilson, Wilson, Bryce Young, Deshaun Watson, and Justin Fields. Five of the quarterbacks that have been least productive so far this season, except for Russell Wilson that actually had some success. We'll talk more about that, but it doesn't stop there. Russell's 18th in intended air yards at 6.9. That's the opposite of what you want. Tua has the fastest time to throw and the deepest intended air yards, a.k.a. the perfect quarterback. Among the five QBs I mentioned, Wilson has the third lowest intended air yards among them. Fields is 32nd. Bryce Young is 29th. You know, a rookie who doesn't know what he's doing yet and an underdeveloped veteran in the worst offensive system in the NFL. And then there's Russell Wilson. Sacks allowed. Nine. Fifth most. Quarterback hits, 18. That's the most in the NFL. If you watch that game against Washington, the last quarter of that game when they're down by 11 trying to get back into scoring range or into, I guess, striking range, Wilson was on the ground every single play. I was surprised he finished that game. He was getting beat the hell up. 30 pressures allowed, also most in the NFL, and Russell also has four scrambles. For the length of his career, He's been that style of quarterback, and elite athletic ability allowed him to thrive doing it. I think he's returned a little bit more form in that sense than he was last year with an off-season regimen that shed some pounds and allegedly made him a little bit quicker. And nobody works as hard as Russell Wilson does, so give him credit for what he does to his body to train. But I think it's part of the core issue with Denver with why their offense has struggled so much the last season plus two games. And now in his last game, he moved around a little bit and hit those high arcing deep shots that made him quite literally the most efficient quarterback in the history of the league as far as passer rating and EPA and all the metrics that measure that go that favor his low volume, high explosivity style of play for years. But it's a struggle recently. And that stems back to his time in Seattle last in 2021 as well. I mentioned the two bomb touchdowns. He also hit a third pass that was over 40 intended air yards, plus three completions of 15 plus. So last week was kind of like an awakening for Russell Wilson for one half against the Washington Commanders, plus one of those was a Hail Mary, so you never know. But very effective stretching the field. They missed just three of those balls, so five for eight, throwing the ball vertically. Week one was a different story. He had two throws at 22 and 21 intended air yards and nothing else over 15. He completed 27 passes, but had just 177 yards on 34 attempts. It was dink and dunk. Try to stay on schedule. If you do that against Miami, you're going to lose because you have to hit explosive plays to match our offense. The lack of explosive plays does not offset the 12.5 sack rate 
like it does when he hits the big play. So I think you have to get Russ to the turf. One of my keys, spoiler, because as a result of the game Sunday, he's now eighth in total EPA among quarterbacks. You limit those deep shots and they've struggled to score through the two games when they don't get the deep ball. 41% of Wilson's passing yardage is on those four completions of over 20 yards down the field. The sacks have been drive killers, and if you force them to play the whole length of the field, you're eventually going to get one because nine sacks this year, they've had 23 possessions on the season. That's like every other drive you get a sack, and they typically end that drive, and it's the fifth most of the two games. They hit all four of those deep shots in week two and scored 33 including the Hail Mary, but in week one, they did not hit one of those, and they scored just 16 points. So big play Hunter. Last year, time to throw 2.94 seconds, was also near the top of the league, and 20-plus air yards, 31 for 78, and 55 sacks. That's not a good combination. 2021, uh, time to throw 2.78, a little bit faster, but less effective down the field, 29 for 75, and 34 sacks. The proof is in the pudding. Limit the deep balls. That's going to be a key. I think Javon Holland and Deshaun Elliott really clicked last week in terms of their, you know, shortstop second baseman chemistry they displayed. Holland was all over the field making plays in the box against the run, TFL, and I think both of them covered super well. Maybe the snowman can get on the board here with his first pick of the season because I think that Russell's going to try the deep shots regardless of whether or not they're there. And I think the way he throws those high arcing shots, I think Holland could get his hands on a couple of those, maybe a couple of picks for Holland. That's kind of my defensive prediction this week. Holland gets his hands on a football for at least one pick. How about how they protect Russell Wilson? Let's go pressures, hits, sacks allowed here for Garrett Bowles. Five pressures, no hits in a sack. Powers, seven pressures, a hit, and uh, no sacks. Cushenberry, clean sheet. Hasn't allowed anything so far at the center position. Quinn Miner, it's the right guard. Uh, two pressures, a hit, and no sacks. And how about Mike McGlinchey? 12 pressures, three hits, and two sacks. Yikes. It makes me curious the game plan because the timely blitzes and then just counting on for the majority of the game, JP or Gink or Chubb or Wilkins or Sealer to win these one-on-ones, I think it's a great option to have against a, a group that I don't think can handle a lot of these guys one-on-one. But I also wonder how much you press the issue on the outs, on, on the inside, because it might be a good time to maintain Vic's classic, you know, four, six, eight coverage concepts, quads, quarter, quarter, half, quarter, half, quarter, uh, but maybe play more bump and run on the outside and force Wilson to kind of second guess and get off that first and second read. Again, they paid big money to McGlinchey and Powers this offseason. And I'm also old enough to recall when Twitter wanted to spend all of our money on those two guys while Lynn, Lamb, and Wynn have been really good so far. To be fair, I was interested in McGlinchey, but not at that price. And it just hasn't begun well for them. Washington got after it all day. I think Montez Sweat is similar in his play style to Phillips, if he can go this week, and Chase Young to Bradley Chubb. I think both players' combinations of speed and power could afford them opportunities as Bowles and McGlinchey are slow plotter tackles. And that makes me think about, you know, Van Ginkle getting some pass rush reps against Bulls too, because I'm not taking JP off the field, but if they can't deal with speed, JP and Gink is a good combination. Now, Cushenberry's played really well anchoring inside in the middle, but you can work on the inexperience playing together for those two guys, or all three of those guys. New position for Minerts, first three games for Powers at left guard for the Broncos, and then Cushenberry just being a relatively new player. But the three of them have not played together for very long. Washington ran <clears throat> Payne and Allen at Powers with, well, power all game long. And they got consistent pushback on him. Sealer is strong as hell. I could see that being a key matchup there because Sealer, I think, 
with the length and power can really give Powers all he can handle. He struggled through two games. And look, nobody loves Javante Williams at running back more than I do, but he's still not 100% back from that knee injury. He's not moving as fast. And I think they overall, he lacks the juice, the, the Broncos in general lack the juice in the backfield that could allow us to pay a little bit less attention and take some focus off that and focus on the quarterback scramble with more zone coverage and more deep portion defending with two high structures. Williams averaging just two and a half yards after contact. P. Ryan at 3.3. They've run for just seven first downs in two games. Outside, Sutton's a big body who can get vertical. He plays almost exclusively on the outside and has the body type and the game, or the, the tile of game that traditionally we see X match up with, with physicality and thwarting the quarterback. Just seeing the one-on-one matchup and chucking up a jump ball, like, don't do that against X. Sutton's made 46 of 102 contested catches in his career. The only year he was over two yards per route ran, though, was a season where he played one game and had six targets. He's just not that productive of a player. Since then, averages 1.47 yards per target. His separation stats tell the story of his game. Three yards average separation and an intended air yards of 11. To make it simple, he's Devontae Parker. They run vertical routes and chuck single coverage balls to him and hope he makes a play. Brandon Johnson is similar. He has one grab for 16 before the Hail Mary catch, which I don't count as like a evaluation metric. Judy's the big one, I think. He's a smooth route runner, and I think the matchup here could be and should be with Kater Kohu, who is the smoothest among our cornerbacks with the best feet. Judy was in his first game back from a hamstring, and it did not look good for him. He had the lowest week two wide receiver separation at a total of 1.6 yards average separation. So Wilson on design and non-scripted runs, scrambles, this is the big one. I imagine we'll shell it and keep eyes on Russell Wilson. Is this a game where Channing Tindall gets some action to match the speed inside, or does David Long do some spying? Curious to see what happens there. Let's go ahead and talk about some additional personnel groupings and uh, number usage here for them. Um, 11 personnel, 53% of the time, 12 personnel, 26% of the time. That's a lot of two tight end sets out there. They have the fullback. So 21 groupings is 5%. They run some 10, which is one tight end or one running back, no tight ends, four receivers. That's 5%. And they go heavy, two backs, two tight ends, 5% as well. So a good variation there for them, which we kind of learned that last week with the New England Patriots. And then some additional defensive numbers here. They allow a 63% rush rate success with negative 6.4 EPA when they play too high and negative 4.7 with one high. So you can run the ball on this team as well. Passing allowing a 6.2 touchdown percentage touchdown rate and just a 5.8% sack rate and a 1.5% INT rate. They are team EPA is minus 20.7. That's 30th. The same rank against passing 30th EPA and rushing in the middle of the pack is 16. So defense has been a struggle for them. And finally, my three keys. Number one, beat the blitz. Tua versus the blitz is great. Joseph does not tend to get home with his blitz heavy defense. Unless he executes a tendency breaker that he literally never has in his career, then I think this will be a big key in the game that Miami can exploit up and down the field. Number two, limit Denver's deep passing production. Wilson's a big play hunter with high efficiency when he can hit deep balls on scramble drills. Second longest time to throw in the NFL and the highest sack rate at 12.5%. The sacks are drive killers. Force him to play the whole length of the field. Eventually, you're going to get one. Nine sacks this year on Russell Wilson. Fifth most in two games. Number three, tackle Russell Wilson. 
He's handled pressure pretty well. 12 for 19, 146 yards, three touchdowns, and a passer rating of 126.3 when you cannot get to him, but also nine sacks, but also four scrambles, 39 yards, in addition to three design runs for 18 yards, so seven for 57 on the ground. Limit his running, stop his deep passing, get him on the ground, and you'll be in good shape. Some areas to exploit, lack of depth at cornerback, we mentioned that, and a blitz-happy defense that sneaks bodies up to the line of scrimmage. Play single high, see what happens. Areas of concern for me, it's just the quarterback running game. I think it's a great matchup for Miami. We don't give up the deep game. I don't think they have the balance and horses to threaten us in the ground game the way the Chargers did. I think we can turn this quarterback over and post a big total. Waddle's availability is the other concern I have over the quarterback run game, but I am seeing this one shake out 44-24 in favor of the good guys, and we continue to have another fun week talking about how great this offense is. I just think they're going to be playing from behind so often they can get enough points, like 24, to make it look respectable, but I don't expect it to look that way when you watch this game. All right, that's going to be my time. Tomorrow on the podcast, my guest from ESPN Denver, Jeff Legwald. Uh, Jeff Legwald, don't miss that. On Friday, Kevin Harlan joins the podcast. I cannot wait for that one. Plenty to come your way here on the Drive Time Podcast. In the meantime, you all, please be sure to subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, wherever you get your podcast from. Follow me on social at Wingfield NFL. Follow the team at Miami Dolphins. Check out the Fish Tank Podcast with Seth and Juice, the YouTube channel for media availabilities and Dolphins Today. And last but not least, MiamiDolphins.com. Until next time, fins up, Caroline Cameron, Daddy's coming home.